welcome to Fierce Hearts Club's podcast. My name's Ruth. And I'm Rian. And together we're joined by the absolutely delightful and wonderful Pippa Grange. You may know her as the former psychologist at the England Football Association. She was with the English football team when they went super, super far in the World Cup a few years ago. And she's also got a book that she's released last month called Fearless, which is a really, really incredible book. So yes, lots and lots of amazing insights from Pippa about her experience of otherness in her job as a coach and as a psychologist in sports teams. And also she's into eco-psychology, which is really, really fascinating. So yeah, lots of really amazing, thoughtful insights and things to learn from Pippa. Just to say as well, we have the Fierce Hearts Club events coming up in the autumn. So the first event we have is with Hilary McBride, who's going to be doing a talk for us called Dear Body, I'm Sorry, Can We Be Friends on the 16th of September. Yep. And then we have some amazing um, speakers coming up in October and November. So we will fill you in on those and reveal all in due course. Enjoy it, guys. So to start off, Pippa, do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about you? My name is Pippa Grange and I am a, originally a Yorkshire woman. I grew up in Yorkshire and went to university here and then the first opportunity I got to spread my wings and go travel, I, um, I took an option to go spend a year in Australia and I just absolutely loved it when I got there and that year turned into 20 <laughs> I picked up some more study there and I started a career there as a performance psychologist originally working with athletes and their families on the stuff of life rather than how to you know kick the ball straight and keep your attention in check it was much more about how am I doing as I'm traveling through this huge performance vortex of of elite sport and I just absolutely loved that work. My first sort of five years in performance psychology was working largely in Australian rules football with lots and lots of Australian rules players, men, all men at, at that point in time. And that kind of branched out to different sports, netball and Olympic sports and various different ways of talking to people about who they were and how they were doing as they were performing. Eventually, I, I sort of started my own business in that field and, and I decided that the performance work per se needed to broaden out even more to be culture work. And that was because everything that I was seeing that was happening in the individual was so common. It was so that the patterns were so repeated, the things that created doubt and fear and shame and exhaustion and loneliness in people were were so repetitive and so familiar clearly they had a cultural aspect so I wanted to see what I could contribute to the culture of sport and the culture of society in terms of how we live and so I sort of made a bit of a left turn and became what I just term as a culture coach and started working on the environments that we live in as well as the individuals that we are that's led to a very interesting journey across sport and business that's ended me now here in the Peak District. You know, came home three years ago uh, for a job with the Football Association here, and I was the sports psychologist and head of department 
running all of the um, culture work for the England football team for the World Cup, which was heaps of fun in lots of different ways and a, a really good adventure. And now I am working as a, again, a culture coach, I think we call it cultural strategy, um, with a group called Right to Dream. And they are an amazing group who basically support people who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity, but have reams and reams of talent and character to have unbelievable educational and football opportunities. And I'm doing a lot of work with women and girls on that side. On the 23rd of this month, my book, Fearless, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself, is published. It's an exploration of what fear is and why we don't need any more of it and how it steals from us, <laughs> basically. How it, it becomes a thief of our joy and self-expression and keeps us very limited. And I talk in that about the difference between in the moment fear that it's entirely reasonable and rational to find a technique to manage. And I share some of those techniques and then not good enough fear, which is probably much more invasive. And it shows up in many, many sort of disguises. Jealousy is the need to stay separate. It shows up as criticism and judgment and superiority and perfectionism and all these other things. And I think it's really high time that we had a good look at what's hiding under those other emotional experiences and recognize the fear and then think about how we can replace that with something stronger and more hopeful. That sounds very uh, needed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I finished writing it at Christmas and then, you know, the editing process from there. And then, of course, the pandemic struck. Um, so it's been, um, it's been really interesting timing because I, I, I think potentially good timing it might be very useful for people right now thinking about how they re-enter some kind of normal thank you so much professor do you want to go ahead and share with us the story that you'd like to tell us today i wanted to talk a little bit about conformity. As I was writing about fear, a common theme that comes up very often is the, the sort of sense of keeping your head down, conforming to the norm so that you don't actually stand out. So we have this very strange juxtaposition in our contemporary Western lives where we're supposed to be amazing and supposed to stand out and in terms of excellence and um, exceptionalism and um, achievement but at the same time there is a, a very strong culture of not being too big for your boots and there's a very fine balance between confidence and the sense of being too confident I, I feel that we're very shaming about that and for me that creates a lot of conformity and I wanted to talk a little bit about being a woman working most of my career as the only woman or one of very few women in men's teams and largely male environments, whether they're at the boardroom or in the executive room or um, locker room. And it's been a really interesting journey that I just wanted to maybe explore with you guys around the level of conformity that comes with that and how I've over the years started to break out of some of that conformity. Um, while I was writing Fearless, I, you know, you, you unravel a lot of your own stories and I, I recognize in myself how Across that time, I have needed to conform to belong in a world where there wasn't any other reflections of me and um, noticing all of the small ways where I um, made sure I could stay in the tent in a, 
highly masculinized, um, hyper-individual world. Um, and the cost to my sense of myself as a, as a woman that that came with, even from really small examples of uh, walking to an environment and everybody else is in a suit and tie. And how, how do you present yourself in that environment to not stand out, but to feel bold enough as yourself? You want your voice to be heard, but you're also constantly aware of your physical presence as different and I mean it is a very unusual job at times being in the locker room with 20 blokes who are getting changed and coaches and or in the boardroom and you're always the only person who's walking in that's a woman but there's just like a hyper awareness that goes with that that means that I felt that I didn't ever quite relax into all of my strength so I guess I've been wondering about the level of conformity for other women in really male dominated environments and the cost of that and how we can start to bring back some care into those environments and, and the idea of like, how do we support each other through that? But also how do both men and women give permission for each other to, to just be without the performative aspects all the time. And I, I know Re, you worked in, um, in law and I, I'm assuming that there was some similar um, circumstances for you and uh, many other friends and colleagues who've worked in in really high performance kind of male dominated environments and how they've curtailed or constrained or shrunk themselves in a little bit mm, and mm. Also, it's not it's not even sometimes the the ratio of men to women I think it's the cultural expectations within that particular workforce or, or place that says you're expected to kind of imbue traditionally male characteristics or traits. So even if it was more like, I don't know, 50-50 at one point, men to women ratio, there was a certain sense of, you know, the traditionally male masculine characteristics of being very bold, being quite um, forthright in your speech and, you know, being quite domineering. And you know, that, that definitely played a massive part in, in the law um, for me. And I, I think you saying never quite relaxing into your strength and your presence and your competence. Mm. That is so true when you've got this veil over you, which is constantly kind of saying, I, I need to be like this to be okay. Or I need to do this way to be competent or to be good and that sometimes really jars with your inner sense of self that's a brilliant point about it not being about numbers it being about culture and a masculinized culture because it can mm. you know it can flip the other way you can have more women than men but if the culture is really sort of hyper rational do it this way there is there is only one homogenized type that succeeds that's the feeling. But, you know, I, I don't actually think that it impeded me in terms of results, the externalized career, my extern external sort of presentation, but internally it did. But I think the cost was sort of a cost onto my well-being. It was wearing, it was a sort of a hypervigilance of being always, I can't tell you how many times, let's say it was on a team bus and I've, I am literally the only woman um, and everybody else has a um, a particular culture and a familiarity and a, a way of doing things that is either really their preferred style and they're just very comfortable and relaxed in that, or they've conformed enough to do it. 
but for me it's a it's a stretch too far it's it's weird for me to do it because you know that's that's just not who i am so yeah. you find yourself in middle ground and always sort of just on the outside in an environment like that so the, there's a cost in ever feeling that you really belong and there's a cost in feeling fatigued and how do you find your renewal in that and even for example in the england world cup team but also a kiwi rugby league world cup team there were a couple of other women the team manager carmen in the kiwis was just a lifesaver for me you know because there's just a sense of difference where you could have a more relaxed conversation you didn't have to be in a role and i'm so grateful for those other women and i you know part of what I think might be an aspect of the caring that we can offer into those kind of environments is to think about what is that sense of connectivity or network for those women that is just not there at the moment when they're in those environments. Some of the stuff that you're, you're talking about, Pippa, the kind of words or themes that I'm hearing when I'm listening to you are around authenticity and belonging. I find it this really difficult balance between the need to belong in a group, but to to do that authentically, and also the need to belong to yourself and to be able to be who you are. And there's this really difficult tension I find, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just so so hard to be able to do that and feel like you're not losing your sense of who you are and not destabilizing your sense of self to belong, but you need to belong to feel connection. Like it's so hard. And it and it is, it's that tension you were talking about actually at the start between almost the standing out and the conforming thing. Another one of the costs I guess is doubt. You know, how do other people see you? Because you're not necessarily part of the banter and the backslapping and the the beers on Friday, or even if you're invited, you might not want to be kind of thing. And so, you know, how far do you bend yourself to belong in that versus stay truer to yourself? And there's a a doubt that comes along with that. And it, it took me quite a lot of years to actually unpack that. And I think one of the turning points for me was recognizing hearing enough feedback you know from other individuals of the fact that the difference really made a difference the difference is really high value but maybe not always brilliantly comfortable so the conversation for me became so where do I find my comfort and how do I also get to a more intimate more human level with each individual um, so that gender drops away and that sort of role-playing performative stuff that you find when you're, when you're in a workplace of any kind drops away a little bit and you can speak on a more human level. And the more I have done that, the less doubt, the less angst around belonging that I've experienced. It's a, a brilliant sort of realization in a way because knowing that the, the thing that makes you stand out is actually the valuable thing but also recognizing that once we get rid of those roles, we're pretty well similar and other people are hanging out to be less performative as well. Do you think that the fact that you were so obviously different, you know, as the only woman in a very male dominated environment and perhaps had a very different approach, do you think that almost gave people permission to also not conform to, to the culture that they were part of? Yeah, I, I, I wonder that sometimes because I do seem to have had very different conversations um, with people. But 
you know, is that the doctor in front of my name or the fact that I've got a role that's, that's a psychology care role or, you know, or is it the, the just the difference in presence um, and, you know, being a woman as part of that difference in, in my environments. But something definitely has meant that I've had the very big privilege of people trusting me with different kinds of conversations than they have elsewhere. And I'm very grateful for that. I was going to ask you as well, Pippa, you were talking about sometimes those experiences being quite draining and you had to kind of ask yourself, you know, how do I find comfort or where do I find comfort for myself? Is there any kind of practical things that you would feel comfortable sharing? I'm just thinking of the listener who's kind of going, oh, yeah. I'm also experiencing. <laughs> I know. I was thinking exactly the same yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. How do we do that? How do you do it? <laughs> I'm definitely feeling like, I, I think it's a similar, um, might be a similar experience that sometimes you might see on the extroversion introversion scale where, you know, you, you might be playing a bit of a role as a bit more of an extrovert than you might be, or you might be an introvert kind of putting yourself out of your comfort zone and that feeling that sense of being drained and not energized in the environment you're in um, and there's probably mm-hmm. some parallels with that but it would be amazing if you feel comfortable sharing about what what might have supported you in that and given you that comfort that you needed yeah um i think uh, the sort of the internal uh, because i'm more of an introvert but the, the internal stuff and the sort of sense of renewal that i get from my own practices for example yoga which I love, but also just being outside. I'm a real, um, if I can immerse myself in nature, that for me is very renewing. I come back to myself quite readily when I can do that. Mm. Um, And a lot of it is about space. Like how do I create space um, in the day? It doesn't have to be a lot even, but just a time that is internal time um, and renewal time and recognize that, um, that, particular kinds of environments are draining for me or that they they require quite a bit of my mental energy Uh, but secondly just the absolute currency of friendships the joy of that and the renewal of that is just so profound where you can feel a human connection for a while it may be no more than a giggle spend half an hour with somebody or to call somebody or to just say how you feel without the doubt of how is this going to be received? I don't have to manage my impression or the performance element that, that may come with the, that exhausting sort of energy. You, you talked about how tiring it was being kind of hyper aware and hyper vigilant, but also the doubt. And I was wondering if you had any ideas or practices or tips in terms of dealing with that with doubt yeah when you are different or when yes when the culture around you is not does not fit with your kind of individual culture and experience yeah you know this is where wonderful people like Maya Angelou so helpful with with her writing or you Mm. know um, the idea of coming back to yourself um, and I guess two things firstly do you know who you are and are you cool with her? <laughs> you know, so the more you are really connected to yourself um, the, uh, and the more you can come back to that, you know, in really simplistic ways when doubts literally pressing down and whispering in your ear to sort of um, to coach yourself from, from that voice, um, from that sort of grown up, mature spacious self to sort of you know this 
you know better than this. This is okay. Let it go. Not important. Yeah. You know who you are. Okay. And I think that's really important. But the, the second piece I would say is that the more time and attention that you spend outside of yourself on others, on purpose, involved in something outside of your own concerns, the more faded your concerns become. So there's, there's, I guess, two tricks, whether we're talking about fear or doubt or, um, mm. or any of it, that's, you know, um, ground back into who you are. So first get to know her and like her. But secondly, make sure that the, the bulk of your time isn't spent on being concerned with you, but it's spent on being concerned with who else is out there and who else you're there to serve. Kind of finding your purpose and connecting that with your sense of self. Yeah. It's definitely not easy because even on the first one, ground back into who you are and like who you are, I'm like, oh, still got a few <laughs> good years of figuring that one out. I'm not even sure it ever becomes a complete picture. Just like a, a sense of your own spirit that you can enjoy, I think is enough. And I think the, the most, one of the most important early things we can do is just absolutely knock perfectionism out of the park you know or this idea that we'll get it right or we'll arrive at this authentic self fully at some point because most of us won't actually get to enlightenment but you can yeah. still quite enjoy yourself and your journey as imperfect and flawed and wonderful and um, you know appreciate those traits in yourself that you can recognize as somebody who endeavors somebody who adventures somebody who is um, willing, somebody who's kind, somebody who, who can find compassion easily for someone else or somebody yeah. like you who can laugh quickly. You yeah. know, I mean, they're all, they're all just wonderful things and it's very easy for us to recognize those in somebody else. But when you can do that for yourself and it doesn't have to be a complete picture, I think we're really starting to get somewhere. And also beauty. I know beauty, you love nature. You take the most stunning pictures and the most vibrant gorgeous photos be it your dogs or nature around you and I know that you're a massive massive fan of this beauty hunting idea and mm -hmm. I guess that ties into this as well grounding back into who you are and that who we are yeah. involves our interconnectedness with nature and I know you're a massive mm -hmm. um, advocate of ecology and eco-psychology and all of that do you want to tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that yeah I mean um, the self is sort of a very fluid concept in perhaps more traditional psychology. There is a lot of attention given to what happens just inside this membrane of skin and the idea that we exist within that. But I kind of don't subscribe to that so much. Self is a much broader idea. And I think we're very, very connected to each other, each other's energy. And I think we're very, very connected to the world around us, the planet around us. And I guess the best way to say it is, as human beings, we're a process. We don't start at birth and finish at death and everything in between is static. We're a constant process. And when you think of self that way and a process that interacts with the environment and the culture and nature, you start to broaden out a little bit this, this mm. idea of how do I go back. It's understanding that the processes in me as a human are the same processes that are going on in, around me in um, the natural world. You know, in the same way that when something's no longer required, it's composted in nature, it falls from the tree and it rots on the ground and creates fertile soil for the next thing. Same thing for us psychologically. You know, what are those dead ideas we don't need anymore? What are those 
old thoughts or old doubts or old worries that are not serving us anymore that need to drop from the tree and just mulch become more valuable growth material for something better something fresher next time around it's understanding that i am nature Mm. you are nature and and you know if we can think of it that way it's much less about what happens in this cerebral cortex you know in the in the membrane of our skin and skull Mm. that's actually quite superficial um you can get beyond that and you can come back and none of it seems really quite as important Pippa, do you want to tell us about your piece of art? Yes, I'm so sad that I don't still have the artist's name. It's um, in in one of my moves. Obviously, the it was written on a card at the back of the piece, and it's uh, I no longer have it, so I can't credit her. But um, it's a Northern Territory Aboriginal Australian artist, and the piece is called Journey of a Woman's Spirit. And I just love this um, this piece of art because it's really about the generational interconnectedness between women and the sort of the larger figures with the big outstretched arms that you can see are um, the grandma or they might be the great grandma. And it's this sort of representation of being cocooned by the spirit of women generations past. You're always supported and connected and, and you're never in isolation. You're never lonely. And I just think that's just a, a really beautiful representation, not just of the Aboriginal Australian um, tradition but it really resonates with me personally too of the connectedness between women and between generations Mm. it's a gorgeous piece it is absolutely stunning thank you we'll we'll obviously share that with our fierce hearts club do you want to just introduce your song yeah this is a piece by Ludovico and Nwadi and it's called Elegy to the Arctic it was done with Greenpeace actually the video itself is stunning but is a piece to listen to with your eyes closed because it's for me it just absolutely says surrender change shift um, it's a him sitting on the iceberg in the middle of the Arctic playing the piano um, it's just like a witnessing of what's changing and I think that's just is such a brave sound in the music and it's just a really beautiful piece it moves me every time he's literally sitting on a floating piece of ice in the arctic and, and playing piano and you notice in the piece, he says, wow, in the middle of it. They couldn't have scripted it, but a huge sheet of ice fell in the background. Right. So I was so wondering really, what all the noises were. <laughs> you have to watch it on the video, but it's, it's mm. just this amazing sort of witnessing of change and, and shifting. And, you know, um, it's really extraordinary. Beautiful. Can we just ask you a few like super quick questions, Pippa? Yeah. So what are you thankful for today? Today I am thankful for Nutmeg, my little one-year-old cockapoo. However you start your day, when you take her for a walk, she's just the most exuberant little being. She heads straight for the park puddles 
mud socks and just like oh my god it's so good to be alive and you can't but just feel good when you're looking at her finding all the possible mess she can get into it's just amazing I'm thankful for her and what what is fascinating you right now fascinating at the moment I guess I've just been studying eco-psychology and there are some really wonderful topics in there not least um, some of the most recent books on um, biogeography, which is all about how do we find our place and sense of home in the landscape that we're in, uh, understanding sort of geological time and how something was formed and how our own histories are formed alongside it. So, you know, think of that idea as a, I think it's called a palimpsest, where the uh, sheets of paper that uh, people painted on at one point, you know, they, they couldn't go get another sheet of paper. So they would just carve off what was there before and repaint. But always behind the picture that we see is a shadow of the picture that was there before. It sounds so interesting. Every time we speak. Really about fascinating. Like, really <sighs> fascinating. And sort of touching on what you were saying before, if you wanted to give advice to your younger self, what might that be? I would have to say it would be to fear less, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to trust that the difference in myself was actually where all the good stuff was and to, you know, to embrace it rather than ever try and um, shape into the conformity that somebody else saw, but just to allow myself to flower the way that I did. <laughs> oh, so much Pippa you're absolutely yeah. incredible as always and you've been an amazing mentor and friend to me so thank you so so much for doing this today and oh we could just talk to you all day couldn't we Ruth? yeah I know <laughs> it's like oh hang on <laughs> let me just ask you about this <laughs> thank you so so much okay. yeah thank you thank you so much Oh, and don't forget we have the first season of our Fierce Hearts Club online speaker event starting in the autumn. Woo! Yay! <laughs> What's the first one? Yeah. So our very first one is on Wednesday the 16th of September at 8pm UK time where we are being joined by Hilary McBride who is a therapist, a researcher, a writer and the subject of this workshop is body image and learning to love yourself as you are which I think is something we all really need and why are we doing it Rian what are we doing it for so we are doing this to raise money for the charity Together Rising so you may know this as something which Glennon Doyle has co-founded so charity is called Together Rising and it's a grassroots charity raises money for all kinds of fantastic causes all over the world um, we've both been super inspired by Glennon Doyle and Abby, and yeah, the work they do is incredible. So we wanted to to raise money for that brilliant charity. So all the money that uh, are, come from ticket sales will go towards Together Rising and the great work they do. So we hope to see you at the event on the 16th of September online, eight o'clock. You can buy tickets on Eventbrite and check out our website, which is fierceheartsclub.com. And you will see all the information you need to buy tickets for this fantastic event. We've also got another event in October and November. So there'll be a monthly event with a fabulous inspirational speaker. And all the women that we have speaking will be talking about women, worthiness and the wild for this season. Mm -hmm.